Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now we're just in a broken time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, my friendly little mogwai. This is Tim Ferriss. And welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. I'm very excited about this one, folks. I've wanted to do it for a long time. It took about a year, year and a half to set up. And of course, every episode is my job to try to deconstruct world-class performers to tease out the perspectives, habits, routines, favorite books, etc., that make them as good at what they do as they are. This episode, we have Mark Andreessen at PMarka. P-M-A-R-C-A on Twitter. He is a legendary figure here in Silicon Valley and indeed worldwide. Even in the epicenter of tech, it's hard to find a more fascinating icon. Mark co-created the highly influential Mosaic Internet Browser, the first widely used graphical web browser. He also co-founded Netscape, which later sold to AOL for $4.2 billion with a B, and then co-founded AloudCloud, which sold as Opsware to Hewlett Packard for $1.6 billion. He is considered one of the founding fathers of the modern internet. This all makes him one of the few humans ever to create software categories used by more than a billion people, also one of the few who's established multiple billion-dollar companies. He's now a co-founder and general partner of the venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, where he's quickly become one of the most influential and dominant tech investors in the world. Now, 
I want to try to keep this short, but it's hard. And I think you'll enjoy at least what I'm about to read. So we refer to an email in this conversation, and our conversation took place at the Sand Hill Road offices of Andreessen Horowitz. We refer to an email from Mark <laughs> to Ben Horowitz, an exchange. And this is how it reads, because we don't dig into it in the interview. This is page 13 in The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, which is a great book. To Mark Andreessen, this is after a media interview where Ben felt that Mark disclosed the company's strategy prematurely. To Mark Andreessen from Ben Horowitz. Subject, launch. I guess we're not going to wait until the 5th to launch the strategy, period. Signed, Ben. Within 15 minutes, I, this is Ben, received the following reply. To Ben Horowitz, CC, bunch of folks, from Mark Andreessen. Subject, launch. Apparently, you do not understand how serious the situation is. We are getting killed, killed, killed out there. Our current product is radically worse than the competition. We've had nothing to say for months. As a result, we've lost over $3 billion in market capitalization. We are now in danger of losing the entire company, and it's all server products management's fault. Next time, do the fucking interview yourself. Fuck you, comma, Mark. So we get into some really fun stuff in this interview that I don't think Mark has discussed in many places. We talk about his epic debate versus Peter Thiel. We talk about all the usual questions, favorite books that he's gifted to other people, favorite documentaries, movies, morning rituals, what he would put on a billboard, etc. We talk about rules for investing, what he does in partner meetings to make people def defend ideas or propose ideas. We talk about AI. We talk about the future of Bitcoin, drones, who to watch, we talk about what he would teach in a ninth or 10th grade class, advice to his younger self, what he misses about the mid-90s internet and how he might recreate it, how he thinks about or handles FOMO. It goes on and on. We really had an extremely detailed and rich conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. And please do say hi to Mark. He's very active on Twitter, at PMarca, P-M-A-R-C-A. Without further ado, please enjoy. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tim. I am so thrilled to be here. I've been hoping to make this happen for quite some time, and I figure we'll just jump into it. Awesome. So the, the first question is strong opinions loosely held. Uh, you're associated with that expression. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, so it's kind of a mentality. It's a mentality around how to start a company for sure, um, and it's a mentality of how to invest for sure. And I think it's a mentality that's probably helpful in a lot of other areas of life. And so it's it's kind of this, I'm, I'm drawn to paradoxes. I'm, I'm drawn to kind of, or, you know, is it the philosophical term? It's like a thesis, antithesis, uh, synthesis kind of thing. And so, because a lot of people, a lot of people in the Valley have very strong theories. And then the problem is they carry them too far because there's always, there's a countervailing theories, right? So you, it's kind of yin and yang kind of thing. And so. Strong views. So strong views is very important, right? So most people go through life and, and, and basically never develop strong views on things or, or, or specifically go along and basically buy into the consensus. Um, and so one of the things I think you want to look for as both a founder and as an investor is you want to look for things that are out of consensus, right? So, you know, something very much opposed to the conventional wisdom, which sounds easy, you know, hard to do, but you want to try to do it. And then if you're going to start a company around that, if you're going to invest in that, you know, you'd, you'd better have strong conviction because you're making a very big bet of time or, or money or both. Um, the problem is, okay, it's a strong view. Great. Okay. What happens when the world changes, right? What happens when like something else happens? Uh, right. And basically the way, right. The way the world works kind of in business and investing and, and other places is just when you think you have everything figured out that everything changes, right? 
So the sort of system evolves and, and, and things happen. Um, and so what do you, what do you do when, what do you do in the world changes? And, and there, what you just see everywhere, I think in the world and everywhere in business, everywhere investing are people just hate changing their minds. People just like, it's just like people get locked or, you know, you see it in politics all the time as well. People just get locked into a point of view on things. And then you get this, all this, you get all these biases like confirmation bias where people feel like they have to, you know, well, it's the thing in, 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 in politics where flip-flopping, right? is viewed as bad, right? Right, right. So take, take it as, as an example, Pol- politician who flip-flops is viewed as, as bad and, 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 and sort of weak and prob- probably evil. Um, actually, it's interesting. If you talk to the world's best hedge fund managers, they're the exact opposite. They love changing their mind. Like, like I'm, I'm one of the few people who will openly admit, I love spending time with hedge fund managers. I think they're awesome. I think they're, they're I, I, I feel the same way. They're fantastic people. And they, they are the most open-minded people I know. And they, they love when you tell them that they're wrong, they get all excited, their eyes light up and they're like, Oh, why, why do you think that? And they're genuinely interested because if, if you're right and they're wrong, they will change their minds and they will, you know, their hedge fund managers, they'll literally reverse the trade. They'll, they're we're long in a company. They'll flip around and go short on it. They're totally fine with that. And that's how it works. And so, um, so what I carry away from that is it, it's, it's, it's the weekly held part, um, which is convicted, 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 new facts change. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but it's a paradox, right. Or it's, it's a tension because those are, those are antithetical, you know, it's determination coupled with flexibility. Like they're, 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 they're antithetical. What you see in the startup world is sort of these two kinds of advice then that, 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 that express this. And, and there are people who with a straight face will give both of these forms of advice without ever acknowledging that they're in conflict. Right. One of which is fail fast. Right. You know, you, you want to fail fast. Like it's going to be, it's great to fail. You want to discover what's wrong. You want to fail and do something different. And then the other uh, is you, you have to be determined and you can't give up. Okay, like, how do you possibly reconcile those? And, and my view of that is that's that's where you get to strong views weekly held. So, how do you advise in in that particular example, for instance, or assess uh, which tact uh, founders or a company should take potentially? Because you you look at some examples, let's just say uh, Uber or something like that, where the model as it began is very much similar to where it is now. Then you have other companies, let's say uh, like a Twitter or others, where they they pivot into a gold mine effectively. And then, I mean, then obviously other things have to be laid on top of that to make it successful long-term. But uh, having been in the Valley now myself for 15, 16 years, you see a lot of pe- people who change their mind almost too frequently That's right. with uh, inconsequential facts, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, h- how do you think about advising a company that's struggling as to whether they should stay the course or uh, pivot as they would say. Yeah. Yeah. So we have, we see both cases. We see both, we see both cases, both, both failure cases. We see companies that are just, um, they're, they're almost, it's fail fast thing is frankly completely out of hand. And, and I'm old fashioned or I come from people like to succeed. Like it's like, <laughs> right. I like to say like we, before this word pivot, like we didn't have, like when I was, when I was a founder, when I first started out, we didn't have the word pivot, right? We, we didn't, we didn't have a fancy word for it. We just called it a fuck up. <laughs> right. And, and, and so like, <laughs> I'm old fashioned on this. Like I like to succeed. I think succeeding should be the goal, not failing and certainly not failing fast or slower or any other form of failing. So, <laughs> so I get really kind of cranked up about this, but, but we do see companies that literally every time we meet, every time I meet them, they pivoted. Like, and so every time I meet them, they're off to something new and, and they're, it, it's just, it's like, it's, I don't know, it's like watching a rabbit go through a maze or something. They're just never, <laughs> they're never going to converge in anything because they're never going to put the time into, into actually figuring it out and getting it right. But then you you do see the other case, and this is what the, the where the fail fast thing came from is you do see their case. You see people who just absolutely are determined that will, will just pound their head against the same wall for years and years and years and years. And it's, at a certain and you admire them for their determination, and then at a certain point it just becomes obstinance, right? And then you're just and at some point it becomes self destructiveness. It becomes Don Quixote. You're just tilting against right. windmills, you know, kind of arbitrarily. And so 
those are polls. Um, we do see behavior at the polls. Um, you know, the question you're asking is, of course, the key question, which is like, okay, what's what's in the middle? How do you know? And, and frankly, I, I don't think there's an answer to that. I think that's, or the answer is judgment. I think I think that's the test. Basically, there's, I think there's a couple key tests for, for founders or for that matter for investors in these kinds of decisions. I think that's one of the really core tests is, you know, do you ha- fundamentally have the judgment to be able to make that call? Mm-hmm. Knowing, by the way, that either either way could be a big mistake. Like, you know, nobody's going to tell you. You're, you're not going to get any confirmation from anybody that, oh, yeah, you made the right call. Like, mm-hmm. that, you're not, you're not going to realize. Like, if you change and then succeed, it's all great. But by the way, you might have succeeded at the old thing even better. If you change and fail, you know, you'll never know whether the old thing would have worked. Like, you know, the, the counterfactual, like, you know, science, I call it the counterfactual. You, you never know the counterfactual. The way my brain is wired, I'm always thinking in terms of the counterfactuals. I'm always thinking in terms of the way things could have been, right? The, the, the world evolved in a certain way, kind of as a consequence of people making all these decisions on the fly. People could have very easily made a different set of decisions. The world could have ended up in a very different place. And so the idea that you're ever going to know the consequence of your decision, I think, is probably a fallacy. Or, or, or what the alternative would have been. Right. Like the relative, uh, uh, the relative result of your decision. And so I, I, I just think you, you basically have to fall back on judgment and you have to fall back on some sense of the intangibles. And when you're looking to say stress test ideas, uh, and if we look at it in say the case of a partner meeting here, so you mentioned hedge fund managers and I, I've, I read a profile of Ray Dalio at one point, uh, I guess it's Bridgewater capital <laughs> and he, they talked about his, his meetings and how they stress test ideas and, and how people need to defend ideas. How, how does a good partner meeting go? If someone, say, proposes, uh, I was going to say a trade, an investment, an investment. Uh, that is a substantial investment, yeah. what then happens from that point to a yes or a no yeah. decision? So we don't get to, a hedge fund manager can reverse himself. A hedge fund manager, right. bad trade, can, the next day he can turn around and take the opposite trade. We, we don't get to do that, right? So when we invest, it's, with, it's knowing that we're in for 10 plus years, basically, is our assumption. So it's, it's and by the way, when we make an investment decision, it's a, it's a commitment of dollars. It's also a commitment of somebody's time. And, and, and by the way, the organization's time and bandwidth. And, and, and there's right. only so much of that. And then the other thing we have in venture is when we make a decision, we then become committed to that company in that category. And so we can't invest in their competitors, including, by the way, their competitors that don't even exist yet. Right. And so, the, you know, for example, the investors in Friendster were more, more likely than not completely, un, not only maybe unwilling, but also unable to invest in Facebook when it came along because they were conflicted because the founder of Friendster would have said, you know, you can't, you can't invest in a competitive company. And so, so our decisions are big decisions and they have serious consequences for the future of the firm. So on the one hand, it's very important to us to have a full discussion and get all the facts on the table and really kind of vet these things out. On the other hand, we're trying to preserve, um, we're trying to preserve the, the the contrarianism of kind of at the core of what we do, the, 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 the strong non-consensus views. We're trying to be able to invest in the things that really are unusual and odd that other people aren't taking seriously. Um, and one of our theories about venture capital is that – so everybody thinks like in investing, it's like you either make a good investment or a bad investment. I actually think that's not the big issue. I think the issue, at least in venture capital, is whether you make a good investment or a great investment. And I think good is the enemy of great. We see many companies that are just fine and that are, you know, yep, you know, founders are good and the market seems good and the product seems good. And the customers kind of like it and they got a little revenue and it's kind of all fine. But those companies tend to never go anywhere. And then every once in a while, we'll see these companies that just have some extremely strong strength, some extremely kind of, you know, special, wonderful thing going on that, by the way, may have all kinds of problems and issues, but there's something at the core of what it is that's really special and magical. And those are the ones that we want to do. What we're trying to do is basically stock our portfolio with just investments like that. Um, and so to capture that, you can't have, you know, it'd be very easy in a conversation about the weaknesses of something to beat the idea to death and you, you never invest. And so the, 
the rule that we have, um, and then and then you would only invest in the consensus ones. You'd only invest in the very good ones as opposed to the great ones, and then you would fail as a firm. So, so we have to kind of we have to do again both things at the same time. We have to we have to try really hard to encourage the strong non-consensus thinking, but also have the full discussion to make sure that we really stress test that thinking. So the way we do it is basically each of our GPs has the ability to pull the trigger on a deal without a vote or without consensus. And, and, and basically what we say is if the person closest to the deal has a very strong degree of positive you know, commitment and enthusiasm about it, then we should do that investment, even if everybody else in the room thinks this is the stupidest thing they've ever heard of. However, you don't get to just go do that yourself completely on your own without stress testing your own thinking. And so it's the responsibility of everybody else in the room to stress test the thinking. And if necessary, we actually create a, we create a red team, right? We'll actually formally create sort of the countervailing force and we'll, we'll designate some set of people uh, to counter argue the other side. Um, and so then it's like a debate team. It's a, yeah, basically. Right. And then, and then, and then the way that we try to, you know, and this is fraught with like, there's all kinds of ways this can go wrong. Cause like, what if I bring in a deal or what if Ben brings in a deal or what, you know, versus the new person bringing a deal or whatever. Um, and so what Ben and I try to do is we, 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 we do this to each other. Right. And so whenever he brings in a deal, like I just beat the shit out of it. Right. Just like, and I may think it's the best idea I've ever heard of. And I'll just like trash the crap out of it. Right. And try to get everybody else to pile on. Um, and then at the end of it, if he's still pounding the table saying, no, no, this is the thing, then we all say, okay, we're all, you know, we're all in, we're all behind you. Right. And then, and then it's an, it's a, it's an, it's a disagree and commit, you know, kind of culture, by the way, he does the same thing to me. Right. So we, we basically, it's, it's the torture test. What are some of the keys to fighting well in, I think it seems key to many different types of relationships, personal business or otherwise, the ability to sort of conflict resolve or just fight well, uh, and then make up. So it, it seems like, uh, you and Ben have, uh, not my words, but like fought like cats and dogs, uh, but you always kind of get over it. We prefer old married couple, old married couple. Yeah. Uh, there is a story. I don't know if it's accurate about uh, Netscape early days, something related to an interview with a journalist. Do you know the story I'm talking about? It's in Ben's book. Okay. So, right. That's okay. Here we go. Including, so if, if, including if, the email you're about to reference. All right. So could you, could you, uh, could you describe this for people who are unfamiliar? I really think you that for that. You got to read, you, you got to read, you got to read Ben's book. Let's just say we started out our relationship with vigorous disagreement. <laughs> And, yeah. and we've continued that to this day. And, but how do you, uh, this is a family podcast. I don't want to use it. Oh, it's if, not if, a family podcast. If you want all the, if you want all the bad words, Ben's book, the hard thing about hard things, it's, it's, it's in the book. And I'll put it in the show notes. The, how do you, I mean, you guys got off to a very aggressive start. How did you identify that Ben was someone worth having those types of disputes with that there was a value in, in uh, what he brought to the table as opposed to just another person that you were butting heads with who is not worth keeping at the table. So honestly, there, there, were, there, were, three, there were three things. So one is he would, he would talk back to me, so he would like argue right back at me. He wouldn't just go into the field. He wouldn't position. just roll over, like he would argue right back. And a lot of, a lot of what you, you see this, I mean, if you just observe a lot of companies over time or investment firms or whatever, you know, everything, you know, there's, there's a temptation, everything wants to become a hierarchy. And then the people always don't have trepidations about speaking truth to power. And a lot of what I've always found the really sort of wise and smart leaders are trying to do is they're, they're trying to actually find the people in the organization who will actually talk back. Um, it's, it's actually, you know, it's one of the ways to really get ahead. You know, this way. there's certain organizations where the way to get ahead is to talk back to the leadership, right? That's how you get noticed. By the way, there are other organizations where that doesn't work at all, um, and I would recommend getting out of those as fast as possible. We, we, we try to be, at least Ben and I want this organization to be one where people will actually speak truth to power and, and argue back at us just like anybody else. And so, which is why he and I argue so much is because we, we want to set the, set the model, you know, set the precedent. 
So that was one as he would talk back to me too, is he was often, if not always right. And I wouldn't say always just because nobody is, but like he was very smart and, and, and very clear thinking. And then the third thing is I saw something early in him um, that he was just amazing working with people, um, which is not something I think has ever been necessarily true of me. Um, but he was just like watching him in front of a, group, of a group of people was just routinely magical in terms of how he could get people, how he could communicate with people in a very clear way, how he could be very fact-based, but he could really make people feel uh, you know, kind of in a really fundamental way. Um, and so that, that combination, you know, made it clear that he was somebody very special. So we, we mentioned Ben's book, which is one of a handful of books that many, many of the best operators, founders I know in Silicon Valley routinely reference. Yeah. Uh, there are a handful uh, that come to mind aside from that four steps to the epiphany, I guess would be one, uh, this one here that was right in the lobby of your office, High Output Management, with a new forward by Ben Horowitz, right. is another which went out of print yes. and then came back into print because it became a bit of a cult classic uh, in here in Silicon Valley. Are there any books that you would prescribe to, say, uh, a would-be entrepreneur coming out of college just to give them, to increase the likelihood of them succeeding? Are there any other books that come to mind? Yeah, so High Output Management is one of Andy Gross' books. It's the best book on management ever written. Um, he wrote another book called Only the Paranoid Survive, which is one of my favorite topics. And so that, that is also a very good book we recommend. Ben's book is good. I think Peter Thiel's book is self-recommending. And it's an Zero excellent book. Zero to one. And then there's a bunch, you know, there's a bunch of others. There's a bunch of others that are, 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 are good. Um, uh Really, though, I think where I got a lot of my education from um, was uh, history, reading history. And so I would go back, like I would go back and read, rather than reading a lot more about the contemporaries, I would go back and read about Edison. Um, I would go back and read about Ford, Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan. Uh, I, I just for, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but like I find the period of kind of call it 1870 to 1920, 1930, really interesting. Um, so you had sort of the arrival of many of the technologies that kind of built the world that we live in today. Very disruptive period. Yeah. And histories, I always find histories is where like, I didn't really study history in college or anything, but I find history is this weird thing where the way that you're taught history, like in school, like in high school, you know, is like, it's, it's all these legendary people and they're kind of all, you know, Olympians, the founding fathers and these great generals or whatever. And it's like, they've, you know, you got the names, you got the dates and they did these amazing things. And they're kind of these great, like, and they feel like unrelatable, like, and you, you like, you couldn't possibly like to even, th at least where I come from, even think that you could have ever have anything in common with these people was just like a non was not something that ever occurred to anybody like they're like the, you know the pantheon of kind of the legendary people who have lived um and i just found like the bio, the really well-written biographies that get you inside the heads of what it was like to be walt disney at age 20 right or what, what it was like to be you know i don't know Car carnegie or mellon or ford um or what it was like to be you know for that matter william randolph hearst or you know the, these you know people we've all heard of like the really good biographers are really good at getting inside the head of what, what it was like to be them then before they became <laughs> right before they became the people who ultimately made it into the, into the history books. And, and, and honestly, a lot of stuff, like a lot of things have changed, but a lot of things haven't changed. Like people haven't changed a bit. And so you, it, I always find like in those histories, you can always kind of see, okay, that personality type, like, yep, I know, you know, 13 people like that, you know? Uh, and, and so I, I, I find that there's actually a lot more to, to template against um, and a lot more to kind of think about. Then people give then people kind of give history credit for. Oh, definitely. I mean, I had uh, Cyrus the Great recommended to me. I guess had Xenophon, and people don't change. I mean, you see the same right. Right. archetypes. You're like, oh, that's Bob, my coworker. He does the same thing. <laughs> uh, right. And the biography 
mention made me think of Walter Isaacson's book on uh, Ben Franklin, who was always sort of untouchable in my mind. And uh, but it, it included all of his foibles and challenges and self doubt, and it really humanized it in a way that actually made me aspire to do bigger things. Yep, if you wanted to get someone hooked on biographies, is there any particular book you would? Recommend? Oh, there's a bunch. The, the Walt Disney biography. I'll just mention it because it's it's a great. Our our our, uh, our one of our founders, Brian Chesky, the founder of Airbnb, has sort of Walt Disney is his hero, um, and so he's gotten me even more deeply to that. So the author Neil Gabler, who's written uh, the best biography on, on Walt Disney, and it's a phenomenal book. I actually like it. another one I really like um, coming out of kind of left field, but there's a uh, Charles Schultz is the uh, creator of yeah. Peanuts. The the Schultz biography is amazing. And basically the case that he makes is that um, he basically makes the case, biographer makes the case that Peanuts was the longest continuous work of American art ever made. It was a 60-year art project um, with deep foundations in uh, American history and psychology and philosophy. Um, and uh, through and it was a reflection of the life you know, of, the, of, the, of the person who made it. And, and of course, it was also a perf- great, Peanuts is a great entrepreneurial accomplishment because you know, it was this very personal thing, but at the same time it became this gigantic business success. So I, I think that one is great. Um, the Wizard of Menlo Park is a great biography of Edison. And Ed- Edison is very much, Edison was kind of proto-Silicon Valley um, in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, I think he's really interesting to, to his, his, his record of sustained innovation in many, many different areas and how he then went out to try to commercialize things. It, it, we, we, goodness is we are much better at the commercialization part now um, than, 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 than people were in those days. We, we know how to build the companies much better now, but... The pace, you know, he would just routinely invent things like the phonograph, like just <laughs> it was just obvious, right, to him. Yeah. Um, and so, and he did that, you know, for decades. He 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 was a fountain of innovation, and I, it's a very inspiring story. The Netscape uh, story we touched on it very briefly, and there are many places people can read about that. So I don't want to take up too much time. But on a related note, I wanted to ask: Is there anything you miss about mid '90s internet? Oh yes, and what it what would it be? Yeah, so when I got to the valley um, in 1993, 1994, I thought I had missed the whole thing because uh, I thought the PC. I had studied, you know, studied the history, and I, I, I used all this stuff in college. And I thought, you know, the PC. I knew, I knew, you know, Apple and, and Microsoft up in Seattle, but Intel down here, and then all these great, you know, all the, all the big software companies at the time, you know, Novell and Lotus and all these companies. The game, you know, EA, the gaming companies, um, I, you know, the great PC companies had gotten built in the seventies and eighties. Right. And by the nineties, by the time the nineties arrived, like it was, the PC was done. Like it was, it was finished and like you could go buy one and it was great, but like it was done. Um, and, and in fact, the overwhelming mood in the Valley when I arrived was that it was done. Like the, the, the PC was done. And by the way, the Valley was probably done because there was nothing else to do. Um, and then there was this moment where I and, you know, various people and then more people and then more people, for whatever reason, it was kind of like we really wrapped our heads around the implication of the Internet, which today seems obvious. But at the time was a very contrarian. When I got to Silicon Valley, if you had said the Internet will become a mainstream consumer medium that three billion people are going to use worldwide for all forms of human activity, you would have been laughed at like you would have been institutionalized like here, like people would have laughed at you. Um, and so as we figured that out, then what happened was it was like, OK, n- new frontier. Right. And it was part of the, it goes back to the kind of history thing. Like, you know, for a long time, the development of like, you know, the United States, the new frontier was whatever was further West. Right. And then eventually they got all the way to California and then they have the gold rush. And like, and then there was famous thing, you know, famous kind of theme in American history is the closing of the frontier. Like there's it's a theme of like every Western, right. That every revisionist Western that gets made is like, there's no more frontier. You know, the radicals can't go any further West. They just, they'll drown in the ocean. So 
Instead, what we have are we have kind of virtual frontiers. We have intellectual frontiers, right? Or we have creative frontiers, or we have entrepreneurial frontiers, technological frontiers. And, um, and so the internet kind of represented the opening of a new frontier. And once we recognized that, it was like, ah, ha, <laughs> brand new. And then at that point, and that was where all the enthusiasm came from, because it was that point of like, okay, if that's going to happen, then, you know, what, what do we have to do? And at that point, right, the list becomes very exciting. Like we have to do e-commerce, we have to do online publishing, we have to do transactions, we have to do, you know, social networking, we have to do auctions, we have to do, right, all of the big franchise companies that came out of, you know, the next, you know, 10, 15, 20, we have to do search, right? All the ideas kind of immediately materialized. Um, and then people, you know, is off to the races. Is there anything comparable right now for you? So I think in my view, there always is. Um, the thing is, um, these things look like cults and fringe activities until they break mainstream. Um, and so for me, it's not, I mean, so like, for example, the mobile rush in the last 10, you know, basically since the release of the iPhone, the, the mobile rush qualified for this, the social networking rush kind of post Facebook qualified for this. And those are kind of known and well understood. And it's just straight entrepreneurial opportunities, probably, you know, generally, kind of reaching some level of saturation, right? Slight digression. We don't foreclose the possibility that there will be another mobile killer app or another social killer app, but it's getting harder and harder and harder because more and more people have figured out that you can do these things. And then the winners have now gotten very established, right? One of the ways we think about it is to, to have a, you know, first, you know, first you had Facebook and then you had Twitter and then you had Instagram and now you have Snapchat and those all became big winners. Okay, now what would it take to make the fifth one? Well, it's got a, there's only so many icons on the home screen of the phone, right? The fifth one has to knock something off, has to knock one of the other ones off. And so it's become, as, as these markets saturate, it becomes more of a zero sum game. Or even, even smartphones, um, you know, smart, smartphone unit, smartphone's a giant industry, but like unit volumes globally are now expanding at like single digit percentages. And so the smartphone industry is becoming one that's mostly people competing directly with each other, not, not creating new things. And so we would say like those opportunities, those businesses are gigantic and those companies will get much bigger, but there's not as much entrepreneurial opportunity. The opportunity is more likely to be in the areas that people think are cult and fringe. What would be some examples? We, we call this what, what we call our test on this. What do the nerds do on nights and weekends? <laughs> right. Their day job, like the day job is I work at Oracle or I work at, you know, I work at salesforce.com or Adobe or Apple or Intel or one of these companies um, or I'm, or, or not, or I'm just, I, I work in an insurance company or I work at a bank or whatever. Uh, or I'm a student, whatever, that's fine. They go, they go do whatever they need to do to make a living. It's the question is like, what, what's the hobby? What's, what's the thing at, at night or on the weekends? So then things get really interesting, right? So then you look at like things like cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. Um, you look at things like a lot of the new advances. There's a whole, the whole area of kind of health hacking, you know, quantified self is a very interesting new area. There's food, you know, there's kind of, the, you've, you've actually been, been part of the uh, catalyst for this, but there's this whole kind of area of like scientific food and food hacking that's emerging. Um, there is uh, a revolution actually happening, I think, in robotics, um, because robotics, robotics has finally become something tractable where people can do it at home. There's uh, AI. Deep learning is right on the tipping point. Um, you, you can now download, as a hobbyist, you can now download this thing called TensorFlow from Google. TensorFlow. TensorFlow, and, and which is a deep learning uh, framework. It's a, it's a framework for doing, it's, AI, it's in the field of AI. It's, a, it's for how computers can kind of deal with the real world and do things like self-driving cars or, you know, all, self you know, self-flying drones or all these things. This is technology. It was so five years ago, it didn't really work. <laughs> um, two years ago, you would have had to have been an employee at one of three or four big companies to have access to this technology. And then Google just open sourced it. And so now anybody in the world can download it, and run it on their own computer. So all of a sudden, like AI is like a tractable thing that you can just have on your own laptop and you can build, you can build new things on top of. You can build, you want to build a bot, you can build a bot. You want to build a self-driving. We backed a founder. We backed a founder who literally built himself his own self-driving car. I read about it. Right, George. And by the way, you should, him, you should interview. But um, 
Like literally, like one guy can now build a self-driving car, right? 10 years ago, this is like a DARPA-funded, like grand challenge, like research project. Five years ago, this is a you know team of a thousand at Google, and now it's George, right? And so that that's an example of the kind of thing where it just looks like it's going to tip. And then, you know, there's one George today, there'll be a thousand Georges tomorrow. Do you think the dangers of AI that some people talk about uh, are overblown? Completely, 100%. Yes. Can you elaborate? All the many things I worry about, the machines rising up and killing us. Luddite fallacy. It's not actually, it's very, it's related. It's, it's, it's related to the Luddite fallacy. Um, uh, uh, it's, it's sharply related. It's, it's the, it's the, it's the, um, it's the Promethean fallacy. There's something deep seated in human psychology where we are always going to invent the thing that's going to kill us. Um, and at one point, or, or we're going to, we're going to, we're going to unlock, fundamentally, we're going to unlock the power of the gods, right? It, it goes back to the Promethean myth. It's like the, it's, it, it's, it's like almost like the concept of original sin. It's like fire, right? Fire, the, the, right. The, big, the big moral of the Promethean myth was like fire. Fire is the thing that enabled human civilization is also the thing that's going to burn everything down and kill us all, right? And so this is very deeply embedded in our, in our psychology. Frankenstein. Um, Frankenstein, the subtitle of Frankenstein of the novel, the subtitle was The Modern Prometheus, right? It was direct, Frankenstein was a reinterpre reinterpretation of the Promethean myth, except in this case, it was literally the monster that was stitched together and then brought back to life through un unholy, literally unholy science. Um, and then there was, um, uh, there's even religious versions of it in, 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 uh, in, in uh, Jewish literature, there's a concept of the golem, um, which is the, 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 the creature made out of mud that, that, that rise, rise up out of the, that's really like the ghettos of, of Warsaw or something to kill all the enemies and then come back and then they kills, kills all the people who created it. Right. So this is very kind of core John Henry, uh, so, uh the steel driving man, right? John Henry is the famous, it's a, there's a song or the, the sort of uh, story about the railroad worker and there's the machine that can like, uh, can um, can hammer in the railroad spikes faster than a human can. And John Henry, it's a famous showdown between him and the machine. And of course he wins and then drops dead of a heart attack. Right. And it's critical in the myth that he drops dead of a heart attack, right? Because technology has to get its revenge. Mm -hmm. And so it's just that projected forward. And, and, and the reason I'm so confident on this is because it's just every single era of technological advance. This has always been the response. There's always been this line of thinking. Mm -hmm. And then it turns out it's a tool. It's a technology. It's a tool. It's something that helps us do things in a better way. It's overwhelmingly to the benefit of mankind, and then we wonder why everybody got so worked up over it. So if we if we put aside the existential threat piece, you know, the summoning of the demon right. conversations, if we yeah. put that aside entirely. Yeah. How would you answer someone who th who worries about job displacement right. of AI? And because there there are some re I think reasonably smart people who uh, are are very fearful of what will happen to society when people are are massively displaced. How, how would you encourage them to think about that? Yeah, so let's crystallize the concern. So the World Economic Forum came out with this, this thing last year that kind of made freaked a lot of people out. They said there'd be 5 million jobs destroyed um, in the next, uh, by 2020, um, by AI, right? Um, so let's, let's run the numbers on that. So that sounds like a lot of jobs. Like that's a lot of people, that sounds like a lot of jobs. Um, so then you look at the American economy just this year, 2016, and we don't quite have this AI thing working yet, so we can't blame what I'm about to say on AI. Um, this year, the American economy will destroy 21 million jobs and create about 24 and a half million jobs for a net ad of about three and a half million jobs is about the pace we're on. And that's this year, right? And so we will destroy in the next three months, um, we will destroy more jobs than the World Economic Forum project will be destroyed by AI over the next five years. Why don't people know this? Why is this not obvious? Because whenever you read news stories about job growth, it's always the numbers quoted are always net numbers. So last month, 200,000 jobs, 230,000, 250,000 jobs got created. And so but those are net jobs. Nobody ever reports the gross numbers. The gross numbers are, you literally go back numbers. We destroy more than 5 million jobs a quarter, and we create more than 6 million jobs a quarter, basically quarter in, quarter out. And so 
One is people just dramatically underestimate the size and complexity and churn in the American economy as it currently exists. Another example would be there's about, it turns out there's about 5 million people who drive professionally in the US. And so one of the questions with like self-driving cars, right, is where this, what's gonna happen to the truck drivers and the taxi drivers and everything and everything else. Again, 5 million jobs. We can redeploy, we, we redeploy every, every quarter, we redeploy 5 million people. Like this is not, in the scope and scheme of the American economy, uh, it's, it's, it's a totally doable thing. The other thing that people don't appreciate and understand, I find mind-blowing, which is, would you, would you guess, based on everything that people say, would you guess that the rate of job creation and destruction in the American economy is rising over time or falling over time? Oh, this, this seems like a test I'm bound to fail. Uh, I don't have an informed opinion. Well, you would, you would, I think most people would guess that it's rising, right? Mm -hmm. The view would be technology is having ever greater impact, right? And so, and and change feels like it's accelerating, right? It's a big theme in the political season is it feels like the world's kind of getting away from us. Technology's getting away from us. Trade's getting away from us. You know, something is, you know, basically dramatic changes are happening that are historically unprecedented, right? It's kind of the feeling. Mm-hmm. So almost everybody believes, like if you do a poll on this, almost everybody believes. It's definitely the perception being created. Right. Yeah. Almost everybody believes that change is increasing, change, change is accelerating. Actually, it turns out in the American economy, the reverse is happening. Um, the rate of both job destruction and creation are falling and have been falling for decades. Have been Like over the last 50 years, they're not dramatic lines down, but they're basically very slow lines down. So basically what's been happening is, in, in, in fact, um, every year the American economy gets less dynamic. Right. And, and, and you might say, oh, that's good because that means that you'll have stability. That means people won't have to change jobs, all that stuff. I would argue that's bad because what that means is we're not creating enough opportunity. Right. And if we're thinking about the future, I think we want to think about opportunity. We want to think about what we're going to be able to do in the future. And we want to think about what our kids are going to be able to do in the future. Right. What will be the new the new fields, the new sciences, the new forms of art, the new industries, the new businesses, the new companies, the new jobs that will get created. Right. Every job that we all have and everybody listening to this podcast has got created as a consequence of the process of change. Right. Which has very been has been very positive to literally everybody on planet Earth. Like this, this is these have been very, very positive changes in terms of increase in human welfare and opportunity. And so the idea of living in a world where change is becoming less rapid, which is what's actually happening to me, is, 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 to me, that would be the problem. Like we, sh- we should want more change. We should want we should want more change because we should want more advances because we should want more opportunity to get created. We should want more products and services in our lives. We should want more industries created. We should want, you know, more medical advances. We should want more advances in art and science and every other field of human activity. And we, basically the way I read it is we have to fight to get that mm-hmm. as opposed to what everybody thinks, which is we have to fight, fight to prevent that. What's the smartest way to fight to get that? If you were willing to go into politics. <laughs> uh, sure, I'm willing. This is, this is, uh, when you run for office, when you run for office, I will help you put your platform together. Um, <laughs> short of that, um, I think the thing to do, I mean, I think that the Valley view, and I guess my view is, you know, do what, do what you can to directly contribute to it. Right. And so do what you can do what you can to either, either try to create the new things, try to create the new products, create the new, the new, the new, again, art, science, technology products, what consumer goods create new things. Um, uh, create businesses around those things, right? Create companies, or for that matter, by the way, nonprofits, like create organizations or models that can let things scale so that they can touch more people. Um, and then, you know, a big part of our role is, 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 is fund them, fund them and support them and help, and help enable them and train them and get them up and running. Uh, you mentioned, for instance, when you first got to the Valley, uh, there was a feeling on the part of many people that it's done. Yeah. PCs are finished. Yep. You missed the boat, kid. Yep. Now in the venture capital world, there's a term used fairly often, FOMO, fear of missing out. How do you think about or handle FOMO yourself? Yeah, mostly we just fall right for it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
probably just total suckers for it. Um, <laughs> so the way we describe it, so, so for, what from fear missing out, where does fear missing out comes from? It's, it's like, it's clear invisible signs that something is happening that you're not a part of, right? And so it's not FOMO of something that hasn't happened yet. It's FOMO of something that's clearly obviously happening. So, which, which for those people not in, yeah. in the tech investment world comes uh, in, in a concrete form, just as it, uh, as it may be mundane example, like an email from a founder, hey, we would love to squeeze you in, we're overcommitted, so-and-so and so-and-so is in, can you get us docs by tomorrow if you're interested, blah, right? I mean, there's a lot of sort of yep. cult cortisol driven emergencies, uh, some of which may be real, many of which are illusions. Yeah. Yeah. And so the thing is, and so I guess there's kind of, there's kind of, you know, there's kind of a couple of ways to handle it. One is you just like you, one of is you, you view that as a sign of success. Like you view that as like what it appears to be, which is like, okay, the train is leaving the station and do I want to be on the train or not? Um, that strikes everybody as like, so clearly wrong. Like that must be wrong. Like that, that must be just foolish behavior, which is why it's been encapsulated into this term called FOMO. That's kind of designed, you know, designed to sound scary. Like that, that must be a stupid thing. You know, a lot of people will at least say that what they try to do then is kind of take the cynical kind of counter, you know, theory, which is like, okay, then by definition, those are probably bad ideas because you're probably getting played or you're probably a sucker kind of, you know, along for the the, the latest scam. And so um, or the opportunity's passed or if it was a good opportunity, why would you be asked to participate in it? Um, and then you go to the other side, the other the other cynical side of the poll, which is like, okay, now I'm, 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 I'm not, I'm not, and there are certain VCs who do this, by the way. Um, I'm not ever going to invest in anything hot because it's going to have that characteristic. So I'm going to, I'm only going to invest in things that aren't hot. The uncrowded trade. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that nobody else is interested in. Right. And so, you know, sort of it's on for old companies. We call that value investing, you know, for new companies, we just call that, you know, cold sectors. It's just an, an area in which nobody is interested. And, and so, um, and you know, by the way, like, I don't think that that's, I don't think in any way that's a dumb conclusion. And there are investors who do that and it works very well for them. My personal preference, what I try to get us to do around here is to just eliminate this as a variable altogether and literally just like not think about it. And so like if it's urgent and we have to invest tomorrow and then if it's, you know, they may or may not ever be able to raise money in five years, what I try to get us to do is just ignore that part entirely. Basically just take that out um, for, on both sides, both the hot and the cold, just take it all out and then, and then try to get to the, try to get to the actual thing, right? Try to get to the it. So what, what is it really? This specific company, right? Doing this specific thing with a specific technology, the specific people at the specific time, what is that thing? And let's make our own evaluation of that thing independent of whether it's hot or cold. Um, and then if it makes sense, we'll invest. And if it doesn't, we don't, but we won't factor in whether it's hot or cold. Now, the challenge we, we've actually we've, we've 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 worked on this over time. Roughly on average, the things that are hot are priced somewhere between two to four x higher than the things that are cold. At the extreme, from cold is cold to hot is hot is about four x, right? And so, in in, in in investing terms, if it's super hot, it's could be forty pre. If it's super cold, it's ten pre, and for the same quality, right? For the same fundamental quality level. And a, a big part of our answer is okay, fine. Like, it's fine. If we're going to invest, we'll, in, we'll invest on market terms. If the market terms are 10 because it's cold, we'll invest there. If the market terms are 40 because it's hot, we'll invest there. But we've made our own decision about whether to invest. Mm -hmm. So we just try to strip it away. Got it. Very, by the way, easy to say. Easy to say, hard to do. Hard to do. Yeah. The, uh, are there any particular investors outside of venture capital who impress you? Yeah. So I spend most of when I study other investors, um, I either study the people we can study the people we compete with and, and, and collaborate with very closely. Um, I also, uh, I particularly study the value investors on the completely other side of the spectrum. And it's a, it's a fascinating, and I've gotten to know some of them directly. It's a fascinating kind of thing. And you know, sort of Warren Buffett is the archetype, but also there's now, you know, there's a lot of famous value investors, Seth Klarman and a bunch of others that have kind of, you know, written books and Seth, kind of built Seth up this Klarman's whole, smart guy. Yeah. 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 This, this whole kind of theory of, of, uh, of, of, uh, value investing that goes back to Ben Graham in the 19, 
in the 1920s, 1930s. And so there's this whole world of value investing. And on the one hand, there's no overlap um, between the worlds because I, I like to say like um, basically anything Warren Buffett's worth willing to invest in, we run screaming in the other direction and vice versa, right? And that's as it should be, right? Basically everything he, he invests in like Heinz ketchup, right? And the reason he invests in Heinz ketchup is because people have been eating Heinz ketchup on hamburgers for a hundred years. And therefore the best guess would be that they're going to continue to eat Heinz ketchup for the next hundred years. Um, we weren't screaming from that because like, you're not going to invest in C's candy. No, <laughs> no, we like, no, absolutely not. And furthermore, I'm, I'll, you know, every time I hear a story like C's candy, I want to go find the new like scientific, you know, superfood candy company that's going to blow them right out of the water. Right. So like we're, we're, we're wired completely opposite in the, in, in that sense. Basically he's betting against change. We're bet we're betting for change. And, and that's a very, very big, like when he makes a mistake, it's because something changes he didn't expect. When we make a mistake, it's because something doesn't change, right? That we that we thought would, and so so they could not be more different in that way. But what both schools have in common is um, a, an orientation towards, I would say, original thinking of really being able to kind of going back to the previous conversation, willing to really view things as they are, as opposed to what everybody says about them or the way they're believed to be. Like the value investors always talking about, like getting to the core of the truth of what's actually happening in the business. And then the other is long term. It's the only other place, value, investor, value investing is the only other place in the market anymore where you can find long-term investors. Like Buffett will actually invest in a company and he will hold it for 40 years. And that does not happen, you know, elsewhere in the market. It's only the deep value guys who will do that. It's funny that at the extremes, they have that in common. Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah. <laughs> if you, you were talking about uh, creating opportunity, if, if you decided to close a chapter on your, your career as a venture capitalist, a funder of ideas, uh, a catalyst, and you had to teach class. Mm -hmm. So let's just say ninth grade or freshman year in college, 50 students, what would you teach? I would be highly inclined towards teaching people how to build things. There's a book I've actually never read, but I love the title. What's the title? Um, it's called Smart People Should Build Things. <laughs> I do like the title. Yeah. I almost don't even want to read the book because after that title, almost everything, almost anything it says is going to be a letdown, but the title is absolutely brilliant. It's one of my two favorite titles. What's the second? The second one, Steve Martin. Uh, I have read this one. Steve Martin's autobiography is a fantastic book. Oh, my life standing up. Or? Uh, my life standing up. And actually, sorry, it's not the title of the book. It's called My Life Standing Up as a title. But the main lesson of the book, he says, the key to success is, quote, "Be so good they can't ignore you." Right. And so, and I, and, and I think it's just I, basically if you just had those two principles, like if smart people should make things and, and and be so good they can't ignore you, like that's a pretty good way to like that's a pretty good way to orient. The, the autobiography is amazing. Also, just as a side note, I listened to the audiobook, the yeah, Steve Steve Martin audio, but yeah, it's yeah, incredible. He's a, I mean, he, he's he's a comedy genius, but more than that, the level, it's like the Schultz thing. It's like the level of thoughtfulness that he put into how he constructed his career. Like nothing about his career is an accident, which I thought was, is fast. Anyway, so um, I think it would be how to make things. Um, and by the way, I don't necessarily even just mean new software and new computer programs, but how to make things more broadly. Um, and so how to make, you know, again, it goes back to how to make, you know, how to make new art, how to make new science, how to make new technology, how to make a new company. How would um, you teach that? Uh, I think projects. Projects. Um, I think hands-on projects. So you would have, say, an art assignment. You would have a science slash engineering assignment of some type. Yeah, yeah. Or you'd have an objective. You'd have a. You know, you'd be trying to construct something. Um, I mean, it's very. It actually turns out one of the reasons why computer science has advanced so fast in the last you know thirty years is because people can make new things on computers without anybody's permission. Mm -hmm. And so, it, you know, it lends itself very well to that, but you know, people can also write books without anybody's permission and they can also write music without anybody's permission. And, and they can also start companies mostly without anybody's permission in most industries. And so basically just anywhere where you can actually do, where you can actually yourself create something new, make something new. Um, and then I, I find, you know, I'm, I'm actually a little, I'm very a little bit from folks like Elon Musk on this. Like 
I find making something new that, that for sure there's part of it. What everybody wants to say is it's, it's creativity. And so therefore it's like, you want to do something new, have an original idea. But, but again, that, that makes people feel like it's a, it's a, it's an unattainable thing. It's like, how, how am I, how am I, how, how am I possibly going to come up with a new idea in a field and where people have been working in it for a hundred or 200 years? Like it just seems implausible. So I also find, uh, and I think the great artists and the great scientists and the great business people often have this in common. It just goes back to history, which is okay for whatever you're going to make, learn about how things got made in the past and get inside the heads of the people who made things in the past and what they were actually like, and then realize that actually they're not that different than you. Like at the time they got started, they're kind of just like you. See, Steve Jobs, Steve, Steve Jobs had a great, he said, uh, one of his, in his, I think in his commencement, famous commencement speech, he said, everything, everything in the world around you was made by somebody who's no smarter than you, than you are. Right. And so there's nothing stopping any of the rest of us from doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that, that would probably be what I would try to do. Maybe a, a boring left turn, but, uh, I, I'm interested to ask, and that is, uh, what are the companies or who are the people you're watching most closely in AI, drones, and cryptocurrency? Yeah, so I'm very proud of. We have a bunch of we have a bunch of companies that we put our like to say we're we, conflict of interest or put your money where your mouth is. We have both. <laughs> um, we have lived up to both principles. So um, we have two drone companies that I think are spectacular. Um, uh, so uh, Airware was our first drone investment, commercial drones, which turns out is going to be just a giant market um, for uh, in industries, oil and gas and insurance and all, all kinds of all, all kinds of implications. But the one that people are going to see, I think, in 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 their day to day lives, is going to be more the other one, which is called Skydeal, um, which is a, com a company we back doing um, autonomous consumer drones. Um, and the, this is going to be a very big advance in what you can do at the kind of hobbyist level. What does an autonomous consumer drone do? Um, it what, well, whatever you tell it. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Okay. And so um, they haven't really uh, they haven't rolled out the product yet, and so I don't want to spoil too much of the surprise. Sure. But it's basically it's a, it's a drone that can it can fully fly itself. Mm -hmm. It doesn't there's no it doesn't require remote control, um, and so it can be given assignments and it will go carry out those assignments and it can fly through it can fly through tree branches it can fly through power lines. It can fly through underground parking garages without any collisions. It, it can just, it can pilot itself, which is if you've tried flying any of the current yeah. drones, they don't work that way. Hard to do. Yes. <laughs> it's an exercise <laughs> in how quickly you crash it. And so it, like that, that technology is about to tip and become very widely usable. Um, and so that, that's very exciting. Um, so there's that. Um, uh, so I'm sorry to, to interrupt. Yeah, sure. Commercial drones for insurance. Yeah. So Can for insurance. would so, be an example. Yeah. Res residential insurance. Residential insurance. You, uh, so you get an insurance inspector. You, you're a new construction. You're, you're remodeling or building a new house. And there's, you know, you're going to get the insurance company's going to insure it. Um, they do an inspection. Um, the inspection involves, you know, a person climbing up on the roof and hopefully not falling off. Right. And taking a bunch of notes on a clipboard and writing up a bunch of stuff. And like it, it's actually turns out to be a pretty like it's a fairly dangerous job. Mm -hmm. um, or another example, cell tower inspection. Um, oh, there's all these cell towers. There's, I don't know, 30,000 or something cell towers in the U.S. They only need inspected. Inspection literally is a dude on cables. Right. And these, some of these are big towers. Um and then you get to like oil and gas, like you get to a drilling rig, you got to inspect that thing. Okay. You know, try climbing up to the top of an oil and gas rig. Right. Like these are very, these are, these are, these are dangerous lethal, things. Lethal professionals. Right. These are, these are, yeah. And, and so um, if you could, but what if you could, what if you could just fly the drone? Like what if you could literally do the entire thing by air? Right. What if the inspector just rolled up to the house and just took the drone out of the back seat and just launched up in the air and the drone flies a pattern above the house takes comprehensive 2D photographs of everything and then creates a 3D representation from the 2D photographs, which you can now do, and then does all the recognition, elevations, everything, materials, 
figures everything out. And then the guys, literally the, you know, the inspectors like sitting in the driveway in the car, <laughs> you know, with the air conditioning on like in no danger. Safe and sound. Yeah. Yeah. And so that kind of thing, or there's another, I'll give you another, um, uh, this, nobody's doing this yet, but somebody's going to. Um, so if you're, if you're a cop, if you're a cop on the beat, two in the morning and you get a call um, that there's a convenience store and somebody's broken in the convenience store, you have to go do the check. The check involves going and seeing whether the, you know, the, the lights and all this stuff and broken glass, but you also have to check the roof. And checking the roof is actually a very important thing because if there's a bad guy and they saw the cops coming, they might have climbed up on the roof and they might have a gun and they might shoot at you. Um, and so you got to go clear the roof. Um, and so what do you do? You get your flashlight and your gun and you climb the ladder and you poke your head up and you hope that nobody's on the roof. Hope no one plays whack-a-mole with your head with a yes. revolver. Yes, exactly. Right. And so what would be the, what would be, what, what could we do to help that? What, how about, how about every, every police car have a drone in the backseat and you just, you get to the thing and from a safe distance, you launch the drone and the drone does an infrared camera sweep right of the roof right before you even walk up to the thing, mm -hmm. right? And by the way, like if there's a bad guy on the roof, like what if the drone recognizes, like, okay, there's a person on the roof and what if the drone locks onto that person and then just basically follows that person wherever they go mm -hmm. and they rabbit, you know, they run, they run for it and the drone is like right there 10 feet above following them the entire time, right? So all of a sudden, like just the job of beat cop becomes a lot safer. Mm -hmm. And so, th and this, by the way, even goes back to the question you asked, which is like, isn't AI, isn't AI a threat? And it's like, no, no. Like this is a case, the way those drones are going to work is with, those are powered by AI. Those AI. Are deep, this is all based on deep learning. This is this new technology, this new AI. Te it's the same technology, by the way, that was just used in that Go, in the, in the, in the, in the famous now uh, Go uh, thing where the, the Google uh, AI beat the, beat the human Great player. Master, yeah. It's the same technology and it's just going to get used for, it's going to get used for drones. And it's going to be, there's going to be things in our lives that we are just going to be able to rely on to be able to make our lives safer and better. Um, and we're just going to take them completely for granted and we're going to work in combination with them and we're going to be really glad we had them and we're going to be completely unwilling to go back to a world where we didn't have them. And it's just going to be obvious. It's just, we have to get it. If we have to get this stuff in people's hands before they can, they can really, I think really fully see it. What do most people not understand about cryptocurrency? I think it's just such a, well, so a couple things. So this will not come as a surprise to you. Um, I thought I understood it and I really didn't. Um, money gets people really cranked up. <laughs> yes, it does. The entire concept of money is uh, probably the single, I don't know, maybe after God, it's like the single most emotionally loaded concept that we have in humanity. Like money just gets, money makes people mad under any circumstances on any topic related to money. Right. And it's just cause I think it's just cause it's such something that we all rely on. And it's something that we always think is being, you know, like there's always this sense of unfairness. And so money gets people really cranked up. And so I think that the, the, there's sort of the idea of cryptocurrency and blockchain and this kind of new idea of distributed trust in the internet. And then there is this application of that technology, which is a very fundamental application, which is a, you know, a new kind of money. I think most people are unable to just simply objectively, dispassionately look at the mechanics of how it works without almost getting preemptively upset, like just angry. Like how dare the nerds come up with some new form of money? Like this has got to be like, there has got to be something wrong with this. Right. And I will now attempt to find, you know, the 30 possible things that could be wrong with this uh, until I find one that basically proves that this can't possibly work. Cause obviously it violates the laws of nature and government and you know, whatever, whatever. And like, somehow I'm going to come out on the wrong side of this. Like people just get, and by the way, I'm not even just talking about like regular people. I'm also talking like bank CEOs just are furious. Like you bring up Bitcoin and they're just like, they just get really upset. And I'm like, you know, did you get upset about your new toaster? Like, it's just a technology. Like, it's just a thing. And you can, <laughs> you can study it and you can learn about it and then you can think about it and then you'll either conclude it's good or not, but like, it's not going to bite you. Like, it's just a thing. Right. And so like the way I look at it, it goes back to like, it's just a thing. It's just, it, we now have this idea of cryptocurrency. It's a, it's a fundamentally new and very important idea. Um, we now have this ability to have this new kind of currency based on top, you know, 
everybody's had 18,000 theories why it's not possibly going to work. Bitcoin is still working today exactly the same as it worked last year and the year before that, the year before that. System is complete by all the noise and all the stuff and all the crashes and this and that and the other thing. Like, it just continues to work. Um, it just is. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, it's becoming, you know, it's becoming like air or water. It just is. Like it or hate it, it just is. And so, anyway, we're still very excited. We're very excited, and we're we're actually we'll, we'll we are going to continue to make new investments against it. Are there uh, of your current investments or non-investments? Are there particular companies that you you think are uh, breaking new ground or doing interesting things in crypto? Yeah. So, well, so um, I mean, Coinbase is our sort of our big bet that most people have as a company that most people have heard of. It's kind of the easiest way to buy and sell Bitcoin, and they have a whole bunch of stuff they're doing. Um, and then we have this company Twenty One, um, uh, which a uh, really brilliant founder. Uh, Balaji Srinivasan, who was a, um, uh, actually was a partner here. Very he smart guy. Partner, very, very smart guy. Um, and he has, he, he has the, he has the highest output per minute of new ideas of anybody I've ever met in my life. And by the way, I mean, output per minute. Oh, it's, it's, I've been at a few dinners with him and it's hilarious to just watch the outpouring uh, after, especially after, you know, one or two glasses of wine, it's, it's astonishing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. He's, he's like an Edison for me. He's like an Edison kind of character. It's just, it's just literally thousands of ideas. Um, and then it's whatever percentage of the ideas that he can personally get to. Right. And then he'll give the other ideas to everybody else and then wonder why they're not pursuing them, which is, <laughs> which is, which is often a good question. Um, and then the next time you meet him, he'll have a thousand new ideas. And so his, his company, he's, uh, people can read about it if they want, but it's done a bunch of interesting things. He has a whole additional set of ideas he's pursuing now. I had a long, I, I went to this thing up, up north and I drove back and I was on the phone with him for two hours, you know, in the middle of the night driving, you know, on the freeway, biology in my ear, you know, idea number 38. I was like, this is awesome. Could be, could be worse use of time, you know, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, good. Yeah. that's good food for thought. Yeah. The, uh, on, on food for thought, what, what advice would you give to Mark the 20 something at Netscape and you can pick the time. <laughs> You know, I've never even thought, I've never for a moment even thought about that. I don't do, so the thing I don't, I don't do replays well, uh, it goes to this history. Like I don't do replays well in this. I, I like the question I'll never answer is what would you do? What would you, what would you have done differently had you known X? And I never, ever play that game because it's there. You never, you didn't know X. Right. Um, and so, uh, I don't know, have you ever read, uh, was it the, uh, the Elvis Cole novels, the, the, no. uh, the great, the crime novelist, Michael Crace, uh, this is a book is novel. Elvis Cole is this kind of postmodern LA private detective. They're great novels. And he's got this partner, Joe Pike. It's my favorite fictional character, maybe of all time. Joe Pike. Joe Pike. Um, is a former, uh, Marine, uh, force recon, uh, guy. So it's a lot like your, your friend Chaco. Yeah. And, uh, in, in the, in the novels, um, uh, Joe Pike has a, uh, he's, he always wears the same outfit every day. He wears jeans. He wears a sweatshirt with the sleeves cut off and aviator mirrored aviator sunglasses. <laughs> Love them already. And, um, and he's got, um, uh, bright red arrows ta- tattooed, um, on, on his deltoids, uh, pointing forward. And basically his entire thing is forward. So that's, that's, forward. that's how like, you feel. We don't stop. We don't slow down. We don't revisit bad, you know, past decisions. Um, we don't, uh, we don't second guess. Um, and so, yeah, I actually, honestly, that question, I have no idea how to answer. I think you just did. Okay. Good. <laughs> Onward. Uh, when you think of the word successful, who's the first person who comes to mind and why? Oh, geez. That's a great example. That's a great, that's a great question. I mean, honestly, my father-in-law for one, um, who's a whole, could be the subject of a whole podcast. Oh, himself. Podcast. Can you give us a taste of, uh, 
so why that is? He's an amazing guy, John, John Arriaga. Um, he uh, is one of the small handful of people who basically built Silicon Valley. Um, and so he um, he has an amazing life story. But uh, just to do the short version is he went to Stanford. He went to Stanford on a basketball scholarship in the 1950s. Grew up, grew up very in a very, uh, very poor uh, part of the country. Went to get a basketball scholarship, um, uh, studied, uh, got a, a bachelor's in geography uh, from Stanford. You may have not ever in your life met a lot of people who have a bachelor's degree in geography. Uh, I have not. Um, they abolished the major the year he got his degree. <laughs> abolished. <laughs> That's a strong word. Wow. Um, uh, he became a real estate broker, uh, commercial real estate broker in like 1958 um, when the valley was all orchards. Um, within two years, he was making 10 times more money um, buying and developing properties as he was as a broker. Um, and his boss fired him because he was making all the other brokers feel bad. Uh, <laughs> So he, uh, starting at like, it's basically continuously from 1960 to today, he's been one of the biggest developers in Silicon Valley. Uniquely, by the way, as far as I can tell uniquely, I've never met anybody else. Um, after the first few years, he basically, he, he has not used debt on a project, I think, in almost 50 years. So he's a real estate developer who does it entirely. That's extremely uncommon. Entirely on equity. And, and basically it was, he, he, and there's a small handful of him and his contemporaries who basically built, literally, literally built the Valley. Um, and so, yeah, no, when I want to, yeah, and he's, he's great. He's fantastic. I, I really love him. He's fantastic. He, um, he, he once sat me down and he's like, okay, he's like, you know, he's like this tech stuff. I understand. Like you guys think it's a big deal. It's fine. You, you got, you should go do it for now. He's just like, I just want you to know the real money's in real estate. <laughs> does have a lot of street cred. And I uh, said, yes, sir. <laughs> uh, do you have any particular morning rituals? Uh, that are important in, to you. Sleep in as long as possible. Sleep in as long as possible. When do you usually wake up? <laughs> Try not to blow through any red lights on the way to work. <laughs> when do you usually wake up? Oh, it, um, uh, 45 minutes before I have my first meeting. Uh, it's, yeah, no, it's, I, I, I do, I do the, uh, what do they call the hot docking? Hot docking. Hot docking. It's like the, the, the controlled crash into the office. <laughs> Uh, it's not, yeah, no, it's, it's, you read these things, it's the whole, the 14 things successful people do in the morning. Like I can't even imagine. <laughs> do you drink coffee? Uh, a lot. Yes. You do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was an emphatic yes. <laughs> if it has caffeine in it, I drink it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I really think, no, the perfect day is caffeine for 10 hours, alcohol for four. Like I think just, <laughs> it, it, it balances everything out really that sounds well. sounds a lot like my day. I'm not shy for a second about that. <laughs> the Silicon Valley speedball. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> do you have any favorite documentaries or movies? Uh, I have lots of favorite movies. Um, I don't know where to start. What have you seen? Actually, you know, in the times? last 20 years, in the last 10 years, really, you know, it's TV, even more than movies. Okay. Um, what, any favorites? Well, the Holy Trinity, so, uh, Mr. Robot, um, which I just think is absolute genius. Um, if you can ever go, the way, get, you should get him sometime. The, yeah. get the guy. He's great. Sam. The, yeah, I, uh, I have never met him. You're, you're probably right about him. Heard yeah. About him. yeah. So he's, he's directing, um. He's he's written and he's personally directing all ten episodes of the new wow. season, so it's going to be. I think he's the he's he would be he he would win. He has actually made a movie, but like he's he's definitely going to win Oscars or whatever it is. People win, um, and then um, uh, Halt and Catch Fire. I'm not familiar with that. Um, Halt and Catch Fire is extraordinary. It's a very it's the best fictional portrayal of what a tech startup is actually like. Halt and Catch Halt fire. and Catch Fire. So there was a, uh, it's a, it's a, the title is there's, there was a mythical IBM mainframe days. There was a mythical instruction that is sort of a, sort of an urban legend that there was a specific piece of code that you could write that would cause the computer to stop and then catch on fire. It's <laughs> um, like the mission uh, impossible command. Yeah. And I don't think it was ever really verified for sure whether or not it existed, but it kind of became this mythical thing. And so it's, it's the story actually, it's loosely the story of the, the birth of the PC and it particularly it's sort of based on how the company compact got built in Houston. It's, it's, it's set in Texas. 
Um, but it's, it's basically the birth of a new computer company, but it's a very, and it's, it's, it's funny cause the, the reviews, the reviews are funny. So it's a historical piece. It's very serious, very serious drama. So, you know, it gets compared to Mad Men and shows like that. Um, I set, you know, set in the office and the personal lives of everybody. And so, and it's funny cause the, the critics reviewed it and they said, I don't, you know, it all seems like it all seems super heated. Like it's all too, like the melodrama is too exaggerated of like all the stuff that happens. And everybody I know in the Valley who's seen it is like, no, no, that's actually what it's like. <laughs> that's actually hundred percent what it's like. And like, I knew that guy and I saw that thing happen and I saw that person blow up that way. It's like Ben's book. Same. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's what it's actually, it's what it's, it's what, so they, they really caught the, it's fictionalized, but they really for anybody who really wants to know what it's actually like to go through one of these things, that 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 show is tremendous. Um, and then, of course, Silicon Valley. Yeah. Do you have a favorite scene or episode? For so Silicon I've Valley? actually still only seen the first season. Um, uh, I, I'm not current. I'm starting to actually become culturally irrelevant because I, I I can't I don't get any of the new references at all. <laughs> I think you'll, I'm I think you'll survive. You seem to be doing just fine. I have to I have to, I have to binge. Um, <laughs> the uh, uh, the sesame seed scene in the first episode in the first season was <laughs> probably the highlight. The the the, uh, the uh, let's just say loosely based on Peter Thiel <laughs> scene. <laughs> yeah, loosely or not, yeah. or not, right? Exactly, or not, or maybe very precisely, very accurately. Who, you know, who knows? Uh, if you could have one billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would you put on it? That could not be an advertisement for one of your portfolio companies. Oh, outside Trump Tower. Okay. No, I'm just, <laughs> it's too tempting. <laughs> What would you put on it though? If you wanted to convey a short message to as many people as possible. Oh, I've got one. All right. Maybe this is a little, maybe a small scale for what you're looking for, but I've got one. I've actually thought about hiring a skywriter to do this one. Oh, let's do it. But, okay. Uh, right in the heart of San Francisco, it'd be a billboard with just two words on it. Um, raise prices. Raise prices. Yes. Can you explain? The number one thing, just the theme, and we just see it everywhere, the number one theme of our companies have when they get really struggling um, is they, they are not charging enough for their product. Um, it, it has become absolutely conventional wisdom in Silicon Valley that the way to succeed is to price your product as low as possible and then under the theory that if it's low-priced, everybody can buy it, and that's how you get to volume. And we just see over and over and over again people failing with that because they, because they get into the problem we call too hungry to eat. They don't charge enough for their product to be able to afford the sales and marketing required to actually get anybody to buy it. Right. And so they can't hire the sales rep. They can't afford to hire the sales rep to go sell the product. They can't afford to buy the whatever TV commercial, whatever it is. They can't afford. They cannot afford to go acquire the customers. Too hungry to eat. They're too hungry to eat. And then they sit there. They don't sell anything. And then they don't sell anything. And they get nervous and upset. And then they cut the prices. And then it's a race to the bottom. Which just makes the problem worse. Yeah. And so probably the single number one thing we try to get our companies to do is like raise prices. Raise prices. Yep. So the last. And by the way, yeah. you know, it's like, okay, like, is your product any good if people won't pay more for it? Exactly. You know, it's yeah. like you get good litmus test. Good litmus test, right? Uh, last two questions. What have you changed your mind about in the last few years? That's a good question. So one is we started. I'll just give you a very practical one. Uh, we started on. Um, we started out. We did. We didn't do any healthcare related stuff here. Uh, investments here, um, and we've now done a complete, almost complete one eighty on that. Um, and we're now very deep into health because we think a bunch of really interesting things are happening. Um, and that was a response to like the hedge fund thing I was telling you, like that was a response. We just, we just basically had a f very smart founders coming through here, basically telling us we were dumb. Like, and by the way, they were right. Like we, we just hadn't figured it out yet. Um, and so we, we got serious about it a couple of years ago and have, we have this guy, uh, VJ, um, Pandey from a former Stanford professor running this program now for us. And it's, it's extraordinary what's happening at the kind of intersection of healthcare and computer science. Um, so there's a lot that's happening there. Um, 
The thing that I'm probably think about the most that I am still trying to work out in my own head is that uh, a combination of Peter Thiel, Larry Page, and Elon Musk in different ways have provoked a fundamental crisis, a fundamental uh, conversation in the Valley around, you know, kind of the, um, the sort of moonshots, the big, the big, the big, the big, um, the, the big challenges. Um, and so, you know, Elon, you know, why can't we build self-driving cars? Why can't we have new kinds of rocket ships? Why can't we go to like literally go to Mars? Um, why can't we cure cancer? Why can't we, you know, do nuclear fusion? Why can't, you know, long list of things, um, that are like, you know, big, big things. We talked about earlier a little bit, like Silicon Valley has always viewed itself a little bit in the tools business, right? Or a lot in the tools business. Silicon Valley has been getting more and more assertive, entering more and more industries directly, right? So like Uber, Lyft entering directly into transportation, Airbnb entering directly into real estate, uh, fintech companies entering directly into banking. So our, our, our companies are getting more assertive at going into markets that previously they may not, you know, other founders may not have been willing to go into in the past and then Larry, Elon, and Peter basically all say in different ways, like, we're still not doing enough. There are these much bigger things to be, to be done. Um, and why are we waiting for either governments to do them or for large industrial companies like GE to do them or for, you know, I don't know, research universities to figure them out? Like, why can't we do these things? Um, and, you know, there's one school of thought that says they're simply too hard. They're simply too hard. They're too daunting. They're too expensive. They're too different. You know, they're, they don't have Moore's law on their side. Like they're they're There's a reason we haven't been doing them. It's because they're, they're, they're too difficult. And then there's another school of thought that says, you know, that's just being a wimp and you should go try to do all these things. Um, because if we're not going to do it really, who is, and then I'm trying to find, is there something in the middle? Like, is there like, what are the shades of gray? Mm-hmm. Right. What's, what's the line, right? What's, what, what's the line where, you know, Tesla, what's the line where Tesla made sense, but you know, Tesla, a Tesla that flies didn't make sense. Like, right. And there's a line in there somewhere, I think. Right. Or maybe Peter's right. And maybe there isn't a line and maybe, and maybe, maybe the next Tesla should be one that flies. Right. And so it's, to me, that's the provocative thing. Cause it, mm-hmm. it, it's a question about stretching the limits. How far Icarus myth. <laughs> How far can we stretch the limits of what we before can your do wings melt. before our wings melt, right? And it strikes me also that I mean, just you mentioned Peter. So uh, the we wanted flying cars and we got 140 characters. It, there were a lot of questions from from fans asking how to how would he suggest people. Uh, entrepreneurs are be encouraged to say solve the big problems versus making social media networks, et cetera. And I think you made a point actually in a debate with Peter at one point, maybe it was at the Milken conference could have been elsewhere that Twitter. And, and I would agree with you as one example, the 140 characters has been world changing in a lot of ways. I mean, you look at political activism, you look at many different examples when you have uh, adoption that, that, that is that wide, that global uh, free with emer- the emergent properties are just uh, unpredictable. I mean, right. you get some incredible use cases. Including political revolutions. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh, last well, question. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. So that, that was, it was a debate at the Milken conference, which is one of yep. my, one of my shining moments is yeah. I prepared for weeks for that debate. Yeah. Knowing Peter wasn't going to prepare at all. <laughs> <laughs> and I bring that up because I think I was actually able to go toe to toe with him, but yeah. I, 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 I had to sandbag him to do it. Um, he was absolutely shocked that I had prepared for it. I enjoyed the, I really enjoyed yeah, the conversation. That was my, one of my great, one of my great debating moments is I could, I could almost keep up with Peter. Um, so, um, 
it's actually funny. His whole thing, his whole slogan that, you know, the slogan of his firm, which is, as you said, we, we were promised flying cars instead of we got 140 characters. It's actually interesting. He will immediately concede that both of those are actually not the point. So he, first of all, he immediately concedes that flying cars probably don't make sense. Um, and then he immediately concedes that Twitter probably is more important than like just being dismissed like that. And so he will, he, he basically, he just basically says the slogan, it was just to provoke, provoke the conversation. Mm-hmm. But to your point, it does provoke the conversation. And I actually think you're right. I think you're right. I think it provokes a conversation from both sides, which is okay. Why don't we have the other big, maybe flying cars or not, but why don't we have nuclear fusion? Why don't we have like all these other things? Why don't we have supersonic flight? Right. Like we had the Concorde. Now we don't even have the Concorde. Like seriously, it takes nine hours to get to London. Like really, <laughs> right? I mean, I think that's that's it's a very relevant question. And then, um, but I also think it provokes the thing on the other side, which is I think the computer stuff, communication stuff, like tw- Twitter and all these other things. If I mean, Peter flatly says the iPhone doesn't count as innovation, and I just think that's, I think that's too far, right? I, I think it, it, it iPhone absolutely counts as innovation. I think it's one of the most important products ever developed. I think the impact on the world is absolutely enormous and growing. Um, and so I, I think there's, there's a, there's a tendency to write off the stuff that built the Valley. And I don't think, I don't agree with that. I think there's a lot more to do in the core of what we do. The last question is, do you have any, any ask or request of my audience, people listening, anything you'd like them to consider, ponder, do? So first of all, they should all for sure work for our companies. Um, and so (laughs) please come to our website, a16z.com. We have jobs. Uh, we have job listings. Uh, we'd like to get everybody in our orbit. Um, anybody smart enough to listen to your podcast, we definitely want to work for our companies. Um, And then, um, you know, I, I would say, you know, I would say build new things. Um, and then, uh, if it's something that needs, uh, if it's a, you know, if it's a business that's promising that needs money, you know, we're, we're open for, we're open for business. Mark, any, uh, last places you'd like people to check you out online? Where can they say hello? Oh, Twitter. Twitter's good. Twitter's good. Twitter. Twitter's at P Marka. At P Marka. P M A R. Is that from your Unix handle way back in the day? It's an old, old joke. Okay. It's a, we had a boss one time who was so important that he had both his real, he had, he had his public email address and he has P with his name behind it, which is his private email address. <laughs> so we thought that was a little bit too much. And so we all gave ourselves P, but nobody knew who we were. And, and then it stuck. Perfect. Well, yeah. everybody say, uh, check out the uh, Andrews and Horowitz website. I'll put that in the show notes as well. You should also check out their podcast, uh, which I've yes. greatly enjoyed. I, I, you can start with, I mean, one that I really enjoyed was the uh, sort of deconstructing Amazon episode. And uh, thank you so much for the time, Mark. This has been a blast. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Tim. And to uh, everyone listening, you can find all the links and everything else in the show notes, which you can find at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. And until next time, thank you for listening. (laughs) 